Okay, this is the plan. This is an early taping for your boy. Uh, the tournament game's about to start. Usually your tournament type stuff is ahead of time. Hey, what's up with your picks? There are better podcasts for that. I would recommend all of them. Um, I'm just not college hoops guy until I am. I mean, I watch it, but I don't watch. It. I'm not going to sit here line by line telling you every single pick. So that's why I didn't do the podcast yesterday. And the weird thing for me is before the NBA draft, that's when I watch all my college basketball. So I start watching a ton of college basketball the end of April. April, May, June on my computer program. Although, I don't know. I don't know. Will I do that this year? And you're more watching tape, not even just games. I know. I'm watching tape, and then I'll send a like a note to somebody. You know, I'll send a note to Gottlieb about some guard that he's trying to tell me about in December. And I just go, hey, I'll put his name down. But I just watch too much NBA. That's that's the thing. And like there are certain college games that I check out. I go, this is incredible. Like I went to the ACC tournament game with uh, the UVA crew and watched UVA in person, and I freaking love watching them in person, even though I know people think it's boring as hell. Uh, watching Bagley in person was incredible, but again, North Carolina couldn't do anything with him. Bagley could set up wherever he wanted. Just a side note on Marvin Bagley, and you know, Aiton, I haven't talked to a team that's taking, in theory, would take any other player except DeAndre Ayton from Arizona number one. I mean, Ayton is one of those dudes, once again, that moves in a way, as soon as you're watching two minutes of the game, if you didn't know much about basketball, you'd be like, who's that guy? And I'm not just talking about getting buckets. You'd be like, that guy moves really well. And I'm a big movement guy, right? I'm, that's what I've always, like, there's just certain people where I go, Wow. One of my best movement lessons ever was Carl Anthony Towns, a scout who told me, he goes, he's awesome. He should go one. But this was a scout, too, that said he, he was like, if I were a GM and I had the number one pick, I think I like Porzingis better. But I'd take Towns because I know I wouldn't get fired as quick because if Towns is a bust, you know, I'm probably going to get fired anyway. But I took Towns. If I took Porzingis one, I get fired because I'm the idiot that took the Latvian kid who had cornrows in, in junior high so uh he, he had told me and i think i brought this up before saruti you've, you've had to have heard me say this before but he you know i was raving about carl anthony towns like you really start digging into tape of, of towns because you can learn different things from tape and games but you're watching the tape of towns and you go end to end like forget it forget it because jillil okafor was in the conversation be the number one pick like we can all hate jillil okafor and say how terrible he is in today's nba and all that stuff he was not void of incredible he had incredible post skill we just don't care about that anymore. And he was atrocious on defense, like so bad. It was so bad. Um, and he and he wasn't good as far as conditioning. Go ahead. But looking back at that, because I'm I'm fascinated by this. Why did we think that that he would work in the NBA? Like, not, it's not like the NBA has changed that much in two years. Like, why? No, it's think- a really good question. Like, I went back and read my thing on him. Um, and I, you know, like I wouldn't deny any of the things that I had said about him. Like I was probably more off on D'Angelo Russell because the the cockiness, the confidence, the playmaking ability, the way D'Angelo Russell saw the game at a very young age, I'm like, man, this is really special. What I didn't realize is that he was gonna have this he was gonna have the same usage rate as Kobe Bryant. <laughs> so like D'Angelo Russell's still a very talented player. He'd be one of the last teammates I would ever want in the NBA. It's awful. Like, it's it's just pig basketball. Did did we think in like as that scouts or or guys in the, in the league did they think Okafor was going to develop into a better shooter defender or think about all of these things because like you know you can make all sorts of jokes like if I were going to go on Levitard again because they kept having me call in about the top however quarterbacks because Chris Sims went on Dan Patrick's show and then gave the top of the list after Levitard had him on every day for like three months. That's beat, and I like Chris, but that's super beat. 
So they started having the rest of us on, right? And I did Tebow. You can't you just stats. You got to throw out the stats. What he has is, isn't quantifiable. Um, and then I did Josh McCown because he's no one's ever peaked later. So his peak years, like his windows wide open. You know, I was just trying to have fun with it. Like, what am I going to do? Call in and go, oh, I got Matthew Stafford eight. But the next guy I was going to do is Josh Rosen. He's never thrown a pick. He's never taken an L. You know, that kind of, that kind of stupid stuff. But it is kind of what we always hope for in the NBA draft. We hope that we were going to see the thing that we haven't seen before. And because you're doing that, because Jalil was really good, although in that game against Wisconsin, like the thing that won him the championship was a, a run from Grayson Allen, but really Tyus Jones was awesome, man. He was so freaking good in that game because I don't know why I went back and watched it recently, but I did. I'm sorry, I'm stalling here. But as you ask the question, it's a really straight, like why would we have thought Jalil Okafor would have fit in today's NBA? It's not a completely, completely different game, although it feels like it's changing pretty quickly. I think what you do is you just go, okay, we know he has great post skills. His hands are insane. His footwork is insane. Look how young this. All right, let's get his body right. Let's get him a little pick and pop. If you have some decent defenders around him, like you talk yourself into the best version of these guys for the most part because it's new. It's like a relationship. All the stuff that's new, it's exciting. I think that's what we do with people, and I think that's what NBA teams do with draft picks. So when you look at the really good talent stuff with Okafor, you hope what you're doing is you're going to you're going to mold it into a better version of itself as opposed to okay all the warts are now completely exposed and permanent on this dude like i still believe Jalil is a very like he didn't all of a sudden suck in the post we just don't care about it at all and i don't think he ever fixed his body and defensively it's just not there and that's back to my original point with towns is that towns the scout said is not a side to side guy he goes be careful with him is yes, he's really good. Yes, he's good number one. He's going to be a multiple-time all-star. But his side-to-side stuff is not where it needs to be. And you're seeing that, too. Like, that was my Anthony Davis argument all the time with Towns. Like, we love Towns. We love Towns because Davis has been getting hurt. And Towns is the new Anthony Davis. When everybody's right, Anthony Davis is head and shoulders. I've always said that. He is, he is I don't want to make it. I don't want to do the, like, hyperbole, like, it's, it's not even close. But Anthony Davis is the best of any of these young players. And anybody that says any of the other guys, you're just, I'm sorry. It's just. You know, even Giannis, I would say, give me a healthy Anthony Davis ahead of Giannis. I would. Um, and Anthony Davis is somebody who moves in a way that Towns will never move. Towns doesn't move his body that way. It doesn't mean everybody, we all still want him, but it's just really interesting stuff. Okay. Speaking of movement, and I know you want to jump in here. I'm going to let you go for a second, but while I do a riff here or two, I'm going to fill out my bracket on the fly. All right. And I just filled it out. I sent it to two different printers and I can't find them. And so I got to do it again, but that'll be the fun. UVA, UMBC, who beat my cats. That'd be Catamounts. It's uh, indigenous to Rutland, I believe. All right, you want to go back to something? I'm just filling out a bracket here. Let's go with Creighton. Like how they play defense. <laughs> you want me? To, okay, so I don't want to turn this into the Okafor podcast, but uh, no, I think you do want to turn it into well, the Okafor podcast. I, I, and, and as the kids say on Twitter, I'm here for yeah. it. <laughs> No which one got your, my last which tweet. Which is your favorite line? Uh, I think we are all, <laughs> we are all Meryl Streep. We are all soup. Yeah, we are all <laughs> soup. We are all Meryl Streep is, I did a mass, I did that video and nobody retweeted it because I was like, I'm here for this. This is who we all are, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and also me. Nobody got it. 
and it's me making fun of you guys that can't come up with anything other than the four stupid quote tweets you do on every freaking tweet. Come up with other stuff, man. Go ahead. Back to Okafor. Back. My my thing. Not a Mecca. Because because you know I'm a hinky disciple. Yes. But it is like his one blemish. Uh, I don't understand. There's nobody in the league that Okafor is like that's like a top twenty player, right? Name one guy that's like Okafor. Mello? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but he's not, though. No, he no. Mello Honestly, Mello's... yes, but Mello can at least shoot. Do you remember when Zach Lowe came on with us and he goes, you know, I kind of like the Thunder more before the Mello deal? Yeah. And I was like, wow. Not a great sign. No, but it was just classic us. Like, it's new. Like, how do you think their big three stacks up against the big three of Golden State? It's not nearly as good, and Golden State's got four. So I just I don't I guess going back and I I'm not a talent evaluator I just I, I like yeah, the draft are, a lot too but I just I would have never taken Okafor because I don't think we were all talented in, in the same though. way that like I'm a Magic fan right Nikola Vucevic he's he's a great skilled post player and he's even developing some sort of oh, a jump shot shoot outside but remember when Orlando was changing the way they played yeah, let's, let's, the game. let's not talk about that what were they seven and two uh, but he he's I don't even know if he's valuable in the NBA today. Like can he ever? He can never be even close to your best player. I don't think a a back to the basket post guy, big seven foot six ten guy, can be your best player if you're a if really elite team in the NBA ever. And that makes me a little bit nervous about Aiton. Oh, because you think he might just get bigger and be like too back to the basket. Well, they say oh, okay, he's basically Shaq with a little more skill at a younger age, and I'm I'm like okay, but if Shaq was reincarnated in the NBA today, and this isn't anything groundbreaking. People have talked about this, but would he be? Would he be? You know, could could he could Shaq be the best player on a championship team in today's NBA? Probably not. I don't know, man. That's that sounds so stupid, but it isn't. It's smart. It's a smart question. So I would never take a guy like that in the draft high. So would, you wouldn't would only, take DeAndre Ayton first? I would only take wing players. I would only take uh, I would So only, who would you take instead of Ayton? I would probably take Doncic. Having watched no <laughs> tape on him. <laughs> you haven't even watched him? Doesn't matter. I'm I'm, I'm believing because the Because he's a Well, what about Bagley? You like you know I don't think uh, Bagley is the same deal. I a non-shooter. Yeah, he's big. not a very good shooter. I was watching him warm up before the game. There's it's just not there. He's not a good shooter. Now Seeing him in person against UNC, I think, is actually misleading because both those defenses let the other team get to five feet within the hoop the entire time. And Duke is soft. Duke sucks on defense. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's some metric that tells me they don't suck on defense. I don't think Duke's very good on defense. And I was talking to Meyer Metcalf about this, actually, the other day because I was saying, all right, yeah, Bagley makes me nervous, though, because I'm not sure what I'm getting in the NBA. And he countered with, and this is a great point, there maybe aren't 15 guys in the league, maybe less, who have the skills that he has. But I don't know that those skills are that valuable. What about Embiid? Now, does Embiid have more face-up? More face-up. He face does up. than Aiton. He does. But I still think that. Embiid is a question mark. Because I'm not sure if if it was if they didn't have Simmons and it was just Embiid, I don't think I'd like this. Obviously, I don't think I would like the Sixers as much with him as their best player because I just don't think, yeah, he if you know, what's his rank? Is he going to be a three-point shooting center eventually? Yeah, he, he, I know he takes some now. but Who, Embiid? Yeah. Uh, Embiid, I can't believe Porzingis is, is the perfect guy. Yeah. So wait a minute, you wouldn't rather have Porzingis than Embiid? I think I would, injury aside, yeah, I think I would. Because uh, offensively, and even somewhat defensively, like he can stretch the floor, he can handle. I don't know, I just, I get nervous with these centers now, and I don't think I would take, and, and even, even Carl Anthony Towns, for as how skilled as he is, I'm not sure he's, be, he's the best player on a championship team. 
I'm not I'm not pausing here because I'm I'm debating you. I'm I'm going, all right. It was just really weird. Forever this league was who's your big? Oh, you don't have one? Well, thanks for playing. Enjoy your forty five wins. And when I watch Houston, I go, What like was this the way everybody was supposed to be doing it the whole time? Although my Houston Golden State thing, we gotta see what's going on with Clay's thumb here and, and Steph's ankle. But the more I've watched Houston, the more I've watched Golden State. I'm not the least bit worried if I'm Golden State in the playoffs. Yeah, I know the whole, hey, Houston gets hot, four out of seven games. Yeah, we understand those things. My high school brother brings that up to me, okay? And he's great with hoops, but, like, you know, he's also 17. So that's not interesting, you know? It's not interesting when you say on a show, if Houston gets hot, four out of seven games. Every single basketball mind has already processed that thought. But... What Houston is at peak and what Golden State is at peak, I, I still think Golden State beats them in, in six games. Um, but now the health thing is part of it. So you're really asking me, would you pass on eight? I, I still wouldn't pass it because I think Aiton's ability to run end-to-end and that you hope he can move into this mobile rim protection guy on top of showing some touch for a guy his size – like there's some touch and feel. I think he has a little bit more touch further away from the hoop than even Bagley does at times. Um, Bagley is incredibly overpowerful and just filthy finishing around the rim. So I'm not I'm not with you on let's get rid of all bigs. I'm not with you on the Towns thing because I think the real Towns things are are defensive challenges because he's actually got a pretty nice little spot up game that's only going to get better and better. Uh, but there are times when I watch the Sixers, like I tweeted out that thing the other night. Now, no one ever wants to hear me say anything about the Sixers anymore, which I've apologized for extensively. Uh, I got it wrong about who they'd be this year as a team. But you know what I hate is them in the fourth quarter. They suck in the fourth quarter. They have the second worst, and I looked at it last week, so I don't know if it's changed in the last few, but it's still terrible. But when I looked at it last week, because I watched them again, then I watched them again against the Pacers the other night, they don't do anything. They try to go ISO Embiid, hey, help us out, and then they'll go post Embiid, and people run a double, and then if somebody else doesn't hit another shot, and then everybody sags off of Simmons, because Simmons isn't a threat to do anything, and that's why I'd also make Donovan Mitchell my rookie of the year. As great as Simmons is, and he's going to be awesome, it's great, but it's like this weird thing that you can kind of prepare for. I think the Sixers are going to have some real playoff problems trying to score because it's incredibly predictable, and they had the second-worst offensive efficiency of any NBA team in the fourth quarter. They're the second worst offense in the NBA in the fourth quarter. And that's, you know, Sixers fans go, oh, trade Embiid again. All right, fine. You got me, man. Embiid's been awesome and he's been healthy. But for the whole Embiid jokes about me saying, I don't know if, you know, we keep this guy, you might want to have to trade him if you have to give him 130 million guaranteed. And it looks terrible because he looks like a generational type talent. Um, he also has to stay healthy. Like he can only miss one. I'll give you, if he misses one year out of this entire extension, you're still right and I'm wrong. But if he misses more than a year, then like that is the whole point of the thing because he missed, I don't know, the first two and, and, and two-thirds of the rest of it. Uh, you ask a lot of really answers, interesting questions that I don't think I have the answer for, and it might just be being stubborn, but I wouldn't be ready to just abandon every single big guy because of what the league has been. And I think Aiton is, and granted I'm a late bloomer to college basketball. Yeah. I watched in like February going forward. Speaking of Arizona and Davidson, I'm going to pick that. Well, speaking of Arizona, I think I think Aiton is maybe the most physically impressive basketball player, college basketball player I have ever seen. He looks ridiculous. more than Dinkadare. Uh, I don't know. You don't remember him? <laughs> no. Google that, kids. 
some people just laughed really hard. Uh, and I would say most of the audience is going, well, who is he talking about? That one when people, hey, like, who would you get wrong? Which draft picks did you get wrong? But I was young. I was young. I fell for it. But then the counter to my point, by the way, would be that, I don't know if you just saw that 25 under 25 ESPN list, NBA players. They're all enormous. They're all, yeah. the top seven are bigs if you count Giannis at one. I think the first non-big is Bradley Beal at seven or eight. Yeah, Beal's one of those forever young guys, too. Um, that was my whole Anthony Davis thing. I'm like, he's still on this freaking list. Like, you've got to be kidding me. Um, but that's that's a different kind of big. That's kind of the big that you're in favor of, the Przingis type. And that's why I, it was reminding me, because I have started going through a little of the prep stuff for the draft, and which is weird because I'm not going to be broadcasting the draft. I'm not going to be doing it anywhere. But I just can't imagine like leading up to the draft not having done all the work that I normally do. I guess maybe I'll do it unless I end up, you know, doing something on the on the TV show side where I just I all of a sudden it's like hey man I know you like your synergy program and you want to glue yourself to it but you're actually being paid for another job now and you, you you can't you can't sit there and scout second rounders uh deep breath deep exhale right there because I'm just looking at my West Virginia crew and I'm going how far do I want to send West Virginia and I think I want to send them far I love Big 12 hoops this year for the you know amount of time that I watched it what you're, what you're saying is okay. So all these, these younger perimeter guys, and Bagley's different because he's still he's still not as comfortable away from the hoop as he is near it. I mean, he's just dominant. But all of these new, like the next Durant that we want to have, like hey, seven feet, kind of just under seven feet. Like who knows how tall Giannis ends up being? You know what I mean? Like these guys are massive and they're moving. They're evolving human beings that we're seeing move in a different way that we've never seen before. But I think every time we look at one of these guys. And an eight and who moves like he does, but he's not Durant. Bagley moves like he's it just actually should emphasize to all of us that Durant will be, not saying he's going to be the best NBA player ever, but Durant will have a chance, and he's in the conversation already, to be as unique a talent as the NBA has ever seen. Because the handle is crisp for seven feet. It's not, hey, he's got a nice little handle. Hey, it's no, I can take you at six two off the bounce. And I'm you're never blocking my shot. And this thing's like clean. It's been clean the whole time since you first saw me shoot. Like the knocks on him, oh, it needs to get strong. As if a guy who we can see the indentations on his bone structure, like you need to write needs to get stronger on a draft preview. Um, and you know what? He probably didn't even need to get stronger. I'll still see him get pushed a little bit. Sometimes some guy will get in his midsection and push him off a screen a little bit. Whatever. I'm seven feet, maybe seven one. My handle's as good as most guards. And I just, I have that shooting gene and I don't need to learn how to, like, that was the other thing. We'll need to learn how to post up or I'll just rain on your head from seven feet. And all of these next great perimeter seven foot guys, and there's a lot of really good ones and ones you should be excited about, but it should also, the, the, the other byproduct of it should be that we have to like remind ourselves to praise Durant when we watch him play because what he is in that body is insane. And it's, I'm sorry, folks, but like George Gervin wasn't that. Big O is going to be mad at you. Big O is, uh, Big O's, that's pretty, that's like, there's always the thing where you kind of do like as the on air guy, and it's almost like a little ego stroke and be like, oh, you know, all the, all the guys at NFL Network have just, you know, they don't like me. You're like, actually, no one cares. Dan Helly doesn't care about you. Actually, Dan is awesome. So I think Dan likes me. 
Uh, but you know what I mean? Like guys, I kind of think those guys are, are losers that will say, Oh my gosh, you should, you know, I'll tell you what show doesn't like me. First take, well, first take was confirmed there for a while that they didn't like me. Uh, I, you know what I mean? Like the guy that overplays his level of relevancy and you just go, actually, no one's really that, that worked up about you. Big O hates me. I think that's all right. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't I, be really that worked up about that. Oh, I'm not upset yeah. about it. I mean, it was weird when Oscar Robertson is, and they didn't do, if you, oh, wait a minute, he did know my name because didn't Smallman try to book him again for something? And he said ESPN and they said who? And then she said Ryan Rossillo and he was like, absolutely not. Is that what happened? I think so. We'll text her to confirm. Texting, sourcing. Okay. Uh, do you have your final four ready? Cause I'm, I've been doing this on the fly. I do. Yeah. Um, I have, <laughs> speaking of eight, and I have Arizona because my thing is I pick guys that I like in the NBA. <laughs> um, yeah, but he's not in the that guys that I like that are going to be in the NBA, like prospects, because I'm just interested in watching. What do you have Luca going? Is they win the That's whole thing? That's the thing. If I, if Doncic was in the, it was in college basketball, I'd probably pick his team to win it all, even though I haven't seen him play a game. Uh, I have Arizona, UNC, Villanova, and Duke. Arizona, Villanova. I, I love Villanova, first off. I probably should pick Villanova to win it all, but I love eight and two. So I originally had Virginia and West Virginia in my final four with Michigan and Michigan State, which I was like, "Am I really going to do that?" I refuse to pick Michigan State only because every year everybody picks Michigan State. Oh man, you just you just killed my whole vibe. Yeah, sorry. But it's like, hey, mm, tournament time, Izzo. I don't know. Yeah, for a while there, I mean, Izzo was outperforming the seed. And then, you know, like I would say, hey, Izzo's the guy. Then he lost to a 15 seed. Then he lost to a 15 seed. And then it was all, like the recency bias on stuff is really funny. Like Lebitard did a poll. They do these polls on the show. <laughs> and they did, uh, they did a poll where it was, is, is Buffalo basically like the best, the second best team of the AFC East Pats run? And it was like, yes. I go, that's, that's the biggest recency bias result. Like Who Buffalo the Jets. They, yeah, the, the, the theory was the Jets are the garbage of the AFC East during this entire break. They made it to two AFC championship games. The Bills hadn't been in the playoffs in what, two decades? They had the longest. Run right, yeah. The longest drought. I mean, the Brady on the scene Buffalo numbers, like Buffalo's. I don't care. They just made the playoffs and broke the drought. But it's to say that Buffalo through this stretch has been better than the Jets is a joke. Even though they had stretches there where I thought they were a more talented team, so that recency bias thing, like it always jumps up all the time. So. The Michigan State Izzo thing, when I go, hey, I love Izzo, love him in his tournament thing, it's like, no, no, he lost to a 15 seed. And you go, all right, fine. Because, like, Roy Williams is the one that was always getting heckled, but then Kansas always. Like, my thing is, is if you're Kansas, you're Michigan State, if you're Duke, like, Duke, most of these top teams with these top coaches have multiple inexplicable early tournament exits that we love. If we don't like K or we hate Duke, we point out Lehigh. If we don't like Roy, at UNC, we point out his 
problems, even though he's probably got a better resume than he's ever given credit for. Kansas, like self, if you bring up yeah. Kansas, self, oh, choker, all that talent. Buck, he sucks all the time. And then if I bring up Izzo, it's like, man, Izzo's overall thing is pretty f- Whoa. Whoa. That was weird. <laughs> Wait. What was that? <laughs> I never do that. Um, we mark the time down. Time. Start again. Izzo's overall thing is really, really good. But, you know, it's it's never enough for these guys. Okay, so that means I got Kansas. <laughs> uh, by the way, I have Michigan State winning the whole thing. Okay. Yeah. That whole talk. There you go. I, I do mean, this. Listen, they got two dudes, so. I do this rapid fire. I don't. I don't waste a ton of time. So my final four is West Virginia. I just, I wanted to put four Big 12 teams in there because I love that conference so much this year, but I'm not going to. I have West Virginia, Michigan State, UVA. I have Michigan State over UVA. 70, I should probably make it 28-24. We had Goodman on, what was it, Wednesday maybe? And after that sixth man. Hunter went down? He was like, don't, he's like, don't pick him. Yeah, I'm not. He he's knows like, better than I do, but and, I'm and he's like I guess the only real NBA guy they have, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not so guy, even though guy was the the big recruit. Uh, I'll admit to recency bias just because watching him recently, I I just loved watching him. I loved watching him play. So that's uh, give me a Rosillo upset special. Uh, everybody's on that Davidson Kentucky thing, right? Yeah, it's. It, I think they're a four and a half point favorite. Yeah, I think everybody kind of loves that. And please, Kentucky fans, let's, you know, we, we've really mended the fences over the years. Let's not get too upset about that. Uh, mm, it's not even, it might not even be a huge upset at this point, but I know. What's the San Diego State Houston line? Mm, you won't have that at the top of your head. You're not, no. You're not. Everybody's, everybody likes Illinois Chicago over Miami. Yeah. Oh. Uh, like I said, we could do every single pick, and I'm not, I'm not going to be able to give you like the Gottlieb uh, type depth on this, and start telling you, okay, these bigs versus these guards are problem. You know, that's the kind of really good basketball stuff. Uh, but I, that's just not. I don't want to do a bad tournament segment, so I'm just not going to do one. So it's UVA, UNC, West Virginia, Michigan State, Michigan State over UVA in the national championship. That's my final four. I have a whole is Tom Brady a dork that is growing into as an adult mind segment that I'll have to do a little bit later. Um, the new baseball rule of the minors put a guy on second in extra innings. People are worried it's going to be a major league baseball. Uh, those are, those are tabled topics. Okay. We'll do those later because we have a ton uh, on the show. Keep up the reviewing. There's still some stuff that's being sent out periodically. If you didn't have something sent to you, it meant you lost. I apologize, but that's the way things work. Our uh, our our merch department for the Rosillo Show podcast is limited. We are we got some hours things that we're even working out right now with HR. Send me your size too. Whenever you send me one of those me tweets, no, like just you, the listener, large, because I need to know oh. because we are running out of certain sizes. So it helps me pick people. Okay, all right. So when you do a review and then you screen grab your review and send it to Saruti or at Oh, we don't have Rosillo show anymore. Um, but yeah, just keep subscribing, unsubscribing, resubscribing, do all the stuff, do all the stuff that everybody else asks you to do. Because once again, uh, this audience 
and I'm going to keep saying this stuff because I feel like there have been people that have, have gone, I'm, I'm not going to get too deep into this, but when the podcast did as well as it did the first two months, there were a lot of people, I don't know why they were surprised, but they wanted to be surprised. Like, oh, it's because it's with Van Pell. Oh, we got Charles Barkley. Or, you know, maybe people like me and want to listen to what we have to say. So we were fourth uh, already. Two months in, we were tied for fourth with Levitard and downloads per show, which is not the same as overall things. He's doing shows five days a week. But that's because of you people that continue to support me. And it there's not a day that I, I go uh, without appreciating every single one of you. Um, and we're going to see what happens, you know, once, once this thing is uh, – and I've, I've even said this too before. I even tweeted out, like, I may just stay with ESPN and keep doing this podcast as I move to LA, um, which is a totally real possibility. And, and I can't emphasize this enough. Like, everybody's been really cool about it. And I think it's, I don't know why anybody would be surprised that it's successful, but it's been incredibly successful. And I, I'm not a self promoter. I did an awful job of that while I was on the air. So I need to do it a little bit more. And that's why I just took a minute or two to, again, thank everybody for subscribing, rating it and the whole deal. But it's freaking awesome to when it comes out and it goes to, number one, number two, or it's always in top five for the first few days that the podcast is out. And then to go on Simmons and to go on PMT and, you know, in the same day, the number one overall episodes in the genre are me. That's that's awesome, man. It makes me feel great. And obviously Simmons and, and, and part of my take are doing just fine without me as a guest too. But you understand the point I'm trying to say. So, all right, I got wicked non-humble there for a second. Do you have anything else to say, Saruti? Anything we need to check on? San Diego State plus three. San Diego State plus three. So there you go. Not a huge upset. I picked him over Houston. Um, okay, I got to see if I can print this bracket out. All right, Dominic Foxworth, CBA nerd talk, but I think you'll like it. I think the stuff that he says, if you've ever asked the question, how come the NFL guy just doesn't hold out for a little bit more? Probably because it doesn't make any sense for him to ever do that. That and a ton of other answers with our man from the NFL. This is something I could do all the time. I think those of you that have listened to me over the years know that my favorite thing in sports is the NBA draft and was lucky enough to be in the building for, I don't know, five years or so doing it as an analyst, which is an incredible opportunity for somebody who never played. But the other thing that I'm really passionate about, and I'm not just talking about sitting around watching games because I love that, is I don't know how it happened, but I love CBA negotiation talk. I love it. I love every step of the NBA stuff. I remember what max players used to make in the year-to-year average raises. I think if you're a sports fan, to truly kind of understand what your teams can and can't do, you have to know this stuff. Like, there's nothing dumber than when I hear a fan say, why do I care that they sign that picture? It's not my money. I go, well, that's the most simplistic way to talk about it. So Dominic Foxworth, longtime NFL vet. You know him from all the different ESPN shows. Also with the NFLPA for years and also the president 2012-2014 is going to hang out. We're going to talk CBA. And the reason I want to do this too, Dominic, is that I feel like I made a mistake to your face and you called me out on it in such a vicious way that I felt bad because I was saying something where I wasn't as educated as I like to be in everything else. <laughs> and vicious? I don't, I, I'm not vicious. You know what I mean though. You like, you have an intensity of, about you where, and this is it. And I, maybe you do remember, but we were hanging out and we were getting ready to come on and do a segment. And I think we were in a commercial break and I had said something about the CBA is, is I just intro here that I like this stuff where I go, yeah, I go, you know, it's, it sucks because the NFL guys like you guys got killed on the last deal. And you're the dude who was the president while the deal, and you looked at me and was like, killed? Like, we didn't get killed, and then you just rattled off all the stuff. So last night as I was researching for this interview, I was like, man, that really must have pissed him off. And it should have, because... 
that would be a very top line misinformed way to describe how the last negotiation went down. So a lengthy apology, a long overdue, but I'm psyched to talk about this now. Oh yeah, you never need to apologize just because I'm intense. Like I, 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 you are, so one of the things I learned coming to media is everybody is so sensitive in a world where we make a living off of being critical. People are so sensitive. And that's something that I have admired about you is that you're not that sensitive. So don't treat me like I'm that sensitive. Like I can, I can handle somebody telling me that I sucked. Like I, I it haven't through a lot of my life and I'm sure you can, you can, you can handle me snapping back at you. So we are not going to have an apology fest. No, if I come, no you're if right. I'm, if I'm a tense, intense with, and Will Kane's another guy who I disagree with a lot, but I like, a very great deal because I can be intense with them and then we can go have coffee afterwards. Like that's the world that I'm used to. And it feels weird now that I'm in the media world that when I have conversations or disagreements with people, I have to then send them an email after like, yeah, it was for the show. Like I still like and respect you. I know I don't have to do do that with you or Will. No, so you, I appreciate you. Yeah. You never have that. to do it with me, but I think it would be like if you and I were hanging out in a room right before <laughs> we're coming back from commercial and I want to move on to the other important stuff here. But okay. if you had said to me, like, Hey, well, this is how I heard your last negotiation went with ESPN and you were wrong. I would go, what the hell are you like? I would look at you going, why are you talking right now? So that's why I don't. Okay. The only Water thing under that, the bridge. All yeah, forgiven. I, it, I've always prided myself. And if I don't truly understand something, put some more time into it and try to understand it. So do this for us. People can look at the top line stuff and say, all right, at one point it was 60% of the revenue. I know that it's more complicated than that. And the NFL split, there were a lot of quality of life things. But what's the biggest misunderstanding from the outside world? Because you were very defensive, not defensive, I would say passionate about telling everybody, you said bleep you to anybody that wants to criticize this deal from the outside. What's the thing a lot of people and players never understood about how this deal goes down? Yeah, so I mean, the the deal deserves criticism. And I have... um become a little less defensive, I guess, of the deal as I've gotten further away from it. Like, there are problems with it that it needs to be solved. But I think the thing that people misunderstand about negotiations in general is that they think it's like the movies. And they think that if you can put on some hardball act that you can out-negotiate someone or out-negotiate the owners. Like, it's about leverage. And there is a kind of systematic asymmetry and power between the owners and players. And so the deals that we are able to get are, um, and this is not just true for football, this is true for all sports. And as much as people like to say that the NBA players are so strong, like I was the chief operating officer of that union. Like I understand the ins and outs of the NBA for people that don't understand that. Like you're part of their players association as well. Right. So yeah, for, so I understand the ins and outs of negotiating there too. And there's a power asymmetry there too. And baseball, the union that everyone thinks is the most powerful union, they're Players get the smallest. Their um, MLB players get the smallest percentage of revenue of all American major sports. I think in 2014 it was at 38. percent So while there are big, huge contracts for individual players, it it doesn't necessarily mean that their um, CBA is as great as people would uh, believe it is. So I think that 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 misunderstanding of what negotiating negotiations are and the expectations for negotiations is the thing that frustrates me because it's always just like, hey. You guys let Roger do this and do that to you like and I know you said you reread uh, an article that I wrote a while ago about decertification. And I think it, I lay it out there pretty well is that because the unions exist, they provide antitrust exemption and protection for the leagues and the owners. So if um, we're going to say 12 billion dollars is um, annual revenue to NFL. 
So 1% that was of what, that. 2016, 2015 number, right? Something like that. Yeah. That's the number that I used in the piece. So 1% of that is 120, 120 million. You break that up uh, amongst all the players in the league. It's $67,000 per player. So that's if you want to, um, sit out or go on strike or endure a lockout to gain one extra percent, it breaks down to $67,000 per player. But for the owners, it's about 3.75 million per owner and it's not just for their three year career. It's into perpetuity with the um with revenue gl- growing. So it'll be up to four million a year and then they hand it, it off to their to their children. So if you think about it that way, the players it's just not in their best interest. A, they're not gonna win because that value that amount of money is much more valuable to the owners than sixty seven thousand dollars is to the players. And B, many of the players, particularly in football, are disproportionately young so they don't have a stockpile of money and they can't afford to to endure a lockout in the same way or strike in the same way that the owners can so that power asymmetry exists so being able to negotiate for um lifestyle changes and and while taking um and this is for all um unions being able to negotiate for improved lifestyle changes or changes in the way that the money is distributed is important uh even if you are taking some financial steps back so I don't know. I, 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 it's just a whole complicated thing that gets boiled down, which tends to happen in sports where we're like, hey, is that guy a winner or a loser? And it's just like an oversimplification of the real complexity of the game and of negotiations. Okay, but you just said the most important thing that I think needs to be repeated all the time, and it needs to be repeated in the face of the NFL player that's shouting on Twitter about NBA contracts, which drives me crazy, What I want, which I do want to get to. Former players ripping current players getting deals. And then fans going, well, who cares? The cap goes up. The cap goes up. And it's like, yeah, when the cap goes up, that also means revenue is going up, which also means that you're basically rooting for an owner to have more money. And I've never understood my friends when they go, oh, you know, these guys make plenty of money. And you go, okay, so then it just means that you want an owner to make even more. I've never understood why the public roots for that. So I've touched on a bunch of things that I want to revisit here. But you just said the thing, like once you laid out the math, everyone has to hear this a second time. So if you put revenue at $12 billion, let's say – the players say, you know, if you were at 50%, we need to get to 51%. Okay. We need to get a percentage back on the revenue split. And again, I don't want the players association getting mad at me saying it's a 50 50 split. Well, I, I'm, yeah, I'm saying all these things. So right, tell, right. Tell, tell George the DME. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So this, once you laid it out this way in the undefeated, and I, I screen grabbed this part of it, just the math alone. So you, you sit in a room and you go, all right, guys. We have to get a percentage point back. We have to get five percentage points back. Blah, 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 blah. You know, long term, we got to think about the future generations of the NFL. So in the meantime, and what's a short NFL career, we've got to ask you guys for like, say, if we get one percent back, each one percent among eighteen hundred players is sixty seven thousand dollars that will come your way for that season. But you've got to lose the money, which would be way more than sixty thousand in the season <laughs> yep. you're under contract. And you have to risk like payment for one year. And like I had buddies in the NHL that lost, they had to give back 20, 25% of existing contracts just to come back to work. And the guy's like, so I signed a deal for 40 million. It's, it's now worth 30. Like that's how that worked. So you're asking all of these players to miss time, to miss far more than the percentage point long term is going to give them back and likely give back the next generation where the owner can look at a $3 million loss as part of an operating loss for 2018. And so no one's ever going to do that. And that's why this game is rigged, especially for the NFL player. And I don't think people get that. 
Yeah, I mean that's the that's the main point. That's the crux of uh, of the issues. So when prior to free agency, then it makes sense to to go on strike because the windfall that comes to your way for free agency is worth it. But since I can't hand my cornerback position off to my sons and to my son or my daughters. Uh, then it doesn't really make sense. I won't be a cornerback for 40 years. So the West Virginia teacher strike just ended and they wanted, they got the five extra percent that they wanted, but that makes sense for a lot of them because that 5% matters because they're 20, 30, 40 years old. They got 20, 30, 40 more years of working. And so it may be worth it to sacrifice a month of work. Now it's not true for the players. So, uh, and that's why I think sports unions have gotten to a point now that we've, we've gotten to free agency and if the owners continue this route, like there is no logical group of players that will sit out for that 1%, be it football, baseball, basketball. If the owners want to um, just kind of dwindle away one, one CB at a time by one or 2% at a time, it is actually illogical for the players, for the individual players to fight back because what they will lose will not, they won't make up. They will not be able to make that up in uh, coming CBAs or coming deals. Which is what led me to the point that the NFL existed from 89 to 93, where they did gain free agency. It was probably the best, the most advanced, the mo- they've made the most advancements in their history. The NFLPA did from that time. That entire time, they were not a union. They were a trade association. And that worked for leverage because it opens up the, um, the league to antitrust violations. And eventually they had a settlement. And in the piece I talked about, the key part of the settlement was that the league said that the players must reform a union in order to come back to work. Think about so that. Yeah. The players didn't want a union. The league said you have to have a union because we need these antitrust protections. Okay. Let's just, let's play this game. And I, I I'm really happy that we, re- repeated that because that's not complicated math that's very simple and i think most reasonable people that listen to this would go oh no wonder they don't sit out more because the owners could maybe beat the players even more if they wanted to um uh, hypothetically like what do you think is the right split like i never know like if you're pro player i've probably slanted more pro player planet trying to play a little devil's advocate with you here but like in a perfect world, like what do you think the revenue split should be for players versus owners? Yeah, that's a that's a tough question. I I honestly, which it might sound ridiculous, as much as I've spent a lot of my life uh, in players centric organizations, I don't think I've ever written down a number and thought this is what we deserve because it's more just about fighting to get what you can get. Like I I, I don't know you can. You can argue that there are different owners that deserve different amounts. Like I really don't have a ton of respect for, for, and I don't mean like I don't have respect for them as individuals, but I don't have a ton of respect for like people who inherit their teams. Like you don't necessarily deserve this. I would argue you deserve it less than the players who, uh, the players have worked their way up. Like there is no player who doesn't deserve to be in the league. Like they've all earned that. You're not a big nepotism guy. (laughs) I mean, uh, who is like that's, it's not something I want to stand behind. So (laughs) it's fine. I think that there is some, and since I've gotten further from the league, I've probably further from being a player. I've probably, softened and become a little bit more of a centrist than I was before where I was kind of a far wait a minute how did that happen I mean I think you get other experiences and you accept that and this is probably true of anything in life is when I was on the the player side negotiating CBAs like I looked across the table and saw the enemy (laughs) like they were the other team and then when I get off of that I like actually get to know other people and get a broader view of the world and you're like nope 
these are decent people that are looking for what's in their best interest. And I don't know. I think I, or maybe I'm just getting old and soft. I got three kids now. I'm just becoming a softy. Wow. See, that's, um, that is, that's fascinating after reading like all these articles on you last night that, that you're, because I, like I've talked to two people that have bought pro sports teams enough that they would talk to me a little bit about it. And I would say, you know, look, I remember when the NBA was 57% and I remember when the deals were seven years and then the deals were too long. So you shrunk them from seven year maxes to six year maxes to five year maxes to kind of four year maxes with a fifth year if it's like a certain player. And then you guys all that the contracts are too short and the players have too much control and too much freedom of movement. <laughs> I'm like, so. You know, you about the 12% raises on the seven-year deals, so you lowered the raises, less incentive to stay with the home team, you shorten the deals, and then the players say, hey, why am I, maybe I will leave, and then you go, we need more control. So you guys need to figure it out. And I was, I was very pro-player in that argument, and then the guy with the money goes, how many people in the country, especially with the, the valuations of franchises, can put together $2 billion in a purchase price? Like, shouldn't I, if I'm a guy that can actually pull off that kind of deal... Shouldn't I be making more than a 50-50 split if I'm one of those guys to be able to do it? And it's, it's a, it's a reasonable, uh, I think it's a reasonable position. You can disagree right. with it, but I think it's a reasonable thing to be said. Yeah, but no, I, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go, no, no, go, go, cause I, I love to keep going. Yeah, I understand and I agree with that. And I think going to business school, getting a better understanding of like return on investment and all that stuff is, has softened my view on those things. But the valuation of the franchise is also tied to the percentage. So those things are tied. The percentage that is, that the CBA determines goes to the owners, like that increases the valuation of the franchise. So those things are connected. But, um, so I, if you're going to invest in something, yeah, you deserve some return on that. And you also deserve some exposure and some risk. And that's the problem that I have with the, the, um, everything trending towards uh, ownership is because it seems that the owners have no risks while the players, uh, yeah, I mean, particularly in football, well, all sports, frankly, you don't make it to professional ranks without making sacrifices throughout the course of, of your life. Like there are several friends of mine who I played with in college that put it all in to get to the NFL because you kind of have to. And then you graduate from college and you don't go to the NFL and you took a BS degree in order to, um, in order to, to have time to practice and prepare. And you, you didn't take internships in the summer because you were working out. You were, you were essentially making a gamble. You're putting all your chips in on making it to the professional level. And that is a hell of an investment that deserves a hell of a return, which is why one of the things that I hated the most was the changing of, uh, of the way that the rookies will be compensated. Because in the NFL, you are always paid for potential. In professional sports, you're not paid for what you have done. You are paid for potential. So I'm fine with a guy, if you are drafting a quarterback number one and he's supposed to save your franchise, fine. Guarantee him $72 million. That's fine. If you don't want to do it, trade back. Why do NFL players on Twitter about NBA contracts? Like, why do they do that? <laughs> Um, why not? Like, I, I mean, it's human nature. Because of math. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's human nature. And I, I mean, I, it's such all, a bad look, man. You're like, it is Dude. a bad look, but we all, we all about something. We, I mean, we do love, collectively, this country loves about work. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll admit I'm very good I could, at that. I could look around this company and find people who are doing a job that are not doing it as well as I think I do mine, and they probably get paid more than me, and I'll go home and about it, but I'm sure there is some reason for why they deserve it, but it doesn't matter to me. I want to about it. I mean, I think it's yeah. a it's a common thing, so I think that's why. I think everyone who's listening to this is familiar with that that feeling where you look up and you're like, okay, Kim Kardashian don't have no right, damn but, talent. But here's the I mean, thing. it's the like, same thing. 
thing. Kim making more than me, I'm fine with. If I go over to Building 4 and I look into a suit's office and I know how much he's making and he's like an important decision maker here, I don't go, why does he make more than me? That's what some of these sweet, like when D-Tackle from, uh, it doesn't matter, he picked the team, <laughs> right, right, right. goes, right. I can't believe how much Mike Conley's making. You go, this is so simple. Divide 53 by 15 <laughs> And there's your answer, man. But it's, I mean, I don't even necessarily agree with that because I mean, I understand that that's part of the answer, but I think the answer is also that they are just like, uh, more valuable. Like no one ever gets paid for, unfortunately, NFL is risky and I think players use that as part of their argument for why they deserve more, but that's not what you get paid for. You get paid for the value that you generate. And obviously Mike Conley is more valuable and, uh, and maybe the numbers actually add into that. Like if there are only 15 guys on a roster opposed to 53, that's true, but basketball a good basketball player is more valuable to his team than a great football player is to his right Unfortunately, we, we've but seen great football players that are non-qbs go to teams and it doesn't it doesn't really change it doesn't i mean, mean joe thomas right. joe thomas might be the greatest tackle we've had in the last 10 years i think he has 48 wins over uh, over his career <laughs> he is phenomenal but he does not translate to wins in the same way that a really good guard in basketball does give me your best I could go in so many different directions here. So you let me know how long we're going here. Um, I'm going all day. I cleared out my schedule. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I got some tournament games to watch at some point. But what's your best story where I don't want to call you militant? You know what I mean? Like, no, I I wear militant proudly. I like that. All right. Um, Professor Griff back in the day type of stuff here. (laughs) Like the moment where you, Cause you said you, you've softened a bit. Give me you when you were, you were more hardened, when you were in the okay. room yeah, negotiating I mean, with these guys and it, something really bothered you. Um, so they were, uh, there are many different tactics that, that both sides use to try to create leverage and leverage is about, um, the perception of, uh, of your like best alternative to no deal. And like, if you can walk away, what can you do? So you do that to create some sort of leverage. And one of the ways that they tried to create leverage where they were bringing in uh, executives, coaches, owners, general managers from teams of the executive committee guys. So the guys, the players who were in there negotiating, they started bringing in guys from our organization because they thought that that would create some leverage where we would be like afraid. And I think it probably worked for some guys, but it it drew a lot of MFs out of me because I don't like, I don't know. I, I, I take, I take very seriously the responsibility that you have to carry on. And this, this, um, I'm going to have to tell a bad story about myself soon because this is airing on the side of self aggrandizement. That is kind of uncomfortable, but I take that responsibility seriously. No, you do. And you should, you shouldn't be humble here. That's a, that's a big position, and you've taken a lot of pride in this. Yeah, and, and people have sacrificed a lot. Like, there are lots of players who are suffering from many different um, illnesses, brain and otherwise, and and went on strike and did all these things to make this opportunity for us. And I just felt very passionately about, like, if I have to get cut for this or if someone is not going to play me for this or if that – like. That's fine. That's the price I paid for taking this leadership role. And so it made me angry when they tried to bring somebody in there that I was supposed to be afraid of. Like, I'm 
I'm an adult. He's an adult. If he's going to use his power to to hurt me anyway, that's fine. But I'm going to let you know right now that what you're not going to do is bully me. So that that drew um, a really bad streak of uh, negotiations that were just a waste of time. Because when they brought in this person who was supposed to scare me, I went off and I was angry for the next. So you're not going to name this person? Weeks. Nah, I, I can't do that to okay. them. All right. No, so I'm just, I, I, I had to I, ask. Yeah, and, and so then eventually they, the uh, mediator said we should start having dinner together and uh, to to mend our relationship because that just sent us down the wrong path. So were you not being a good negotiator, or were you like what was? <laughs> no, I mean, you I think give so. me a little bit more here. You don't have to give me sure. his name, but I just need an yeah, example. Yeah, sure. Um, I think that I was not open to having negotiations at that time. That my point, my purpose at that point, and I think it was probably counterproductive but my purpose at that point was to let them know that we or at least i am not going to be intimidated and that i do not care about this career more than i care about um doing what's uh what's right in this situation and so i I, we didn't really make much progress because every day everything that they said or everything this person said uh was met with a an, an mf and i was young and dumb i wouldn't do it the same way now but I think about that as a situation. And then we had the, we started having the dinners and I actually built a good relationship with some of those owners and they wrote recommendations for me to go when I started applying to business school. So it wasn't all bad, but that just set me off on the wrong foot. Here's, here's a happier story. So okay. <laughs> um, I remember, uh, Jerry Jones, he's, he's, he is exactly what you think he is. Like, uh, <laughs> while that act uh, on TV seems like an act, it is not. He is a folksy, uh, billionaire oil man. And so I remember we started getting down into like minute details of negotiations. And that is not something that Jerry is here for. So he got up and threw his pen on the table and walked out and said, now we're just circumcising a mosquito and walked out and we all looked around like, <laughs> <laughs> we're doing what? So I enjoy Jerry Jones. He is uh, one of my favorite owners, particularly now because he provides so much entertainment for us outside of what's happening on the field. Just beefing with Roger is funny. Do you think now the the owner player relationship? I think is examined more now than than ever before because you start. I think we're just asking more questions. I think in this this age of being more aware about different things, even though I can go through the Bruno Mars debate and be like, man, that's an incredible waste of time. Um, and that's just personally how I feel about it. But I go, you know, there, there are some good questions that are being asked all the time. Do you think that when the owners look at players, they think less of you in an insulting way, or is it just the nature of what that relationship is? Employer, employee? Um, I don't, well, you said in an insulting way, like there's any other way to think left, less of someone. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, look, I, I don't know. I guess I feel like there is not a, there is not a non-insulting way to think less of someone. So I think they do think less of the players. I think that they think of players as, um, cogs in, in a, in a machine that are interchangeable. And sadly, in many cases, the, the players are interchangeable. So yeah, yeah. I mean, and that came across very clearly in a lot of the negotiations where I remember we were negotiating for money for former players and one of the, the owners who had purchased his team relatively recently named some of the former players that we, that were like in the, whatever the like their little honorees type portion of their stadium and said, I wasn't there for him. He didn't do anything for me and as a defense for why he should, he should not have to pitch in to 
to provide some sort of legacy fund for these guys. So I, I mean, they don't. That's just, it's a, it's a business and the players are the product. And I think they think of the players as a product. Generally, I think by and large, if you get them on a one, on a one on one basis, they like the players as people, but when it's about business, they look at the players as a, as a cost and they want to lower their costs by any way they can. I mean, that's the best way I could put it. What's, What's the overall, I mean, everybody's different. We're talking about 1,800 guys. I don't, I don't love, you know, it's like anything. Like if you have a condo association and a guy that hasn't shown up to a meeting in four years complains about the new pool hours <laughs> and you go, all right, you might be right, but like, where have you been? You, you couldn't walk down the street once in four years to show up to a meeting and, and voice your opinion there. You had to wait until we posted the pool hours to tell everybody <laughs> how stupid they are. And I think that's a decent analogy of if it's 1800 guys, not all of these guys are going to be invested, but nobody like it's just, this is again, very much like human nature is the CBA outcomes announced. It's, it's quality of life improvements, no more two a days, 14 padded practices. I, you know, I've read all this stuff last night, hooking up with Harvard medical school, uh, a transition program that you have for players after fact, like real quality life improvements. But then the player goes, so wait a minute, how much do we lose in revenue on this deal? You know, Dominique and those guys, they don't, they don't know what the hell they're doing. Like how frustrating and maddening was that for you, for somebody that, that's really smart and invested in this? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's certainly frustrating, but, uh, it's to be expected. Like you get used to it and, and you're right. It's human nature. It's something that, uh, people don't care about that stuff. It's stuff's not fun or interesting or exciting. Uh, and I don't even mean to say exciting like they're off like gallivanting around at strip clubs or something doing something more exciting. I just mean that many of the guys are focused on what they're doing on the field and they trust us to take care of business for them. And if they're not happy with how the way with the way things turn out, it is frustrating. But I mean, what else can you say to them other than get involved? <laughs> like that's what it boils down to. And I, I've always been willing to sit down and have these conversations with um with whomever players or not about anything and i was to be frank i was one of the people that was against signing the deal back then there were a few of us that didn't want to sign the deal and i think looking back on it it was foolish of me like i wasn't happy with with the way that the financial thing broke down and as you can tell by the way that i was um yelling and cursing at people on occasion like uh, more often than not i was civil responsible negotiator but sometimes like i I'd, I'd resign myself to the fact that i may be blackballed from the league and i was completely comfortable with missing an entire season of football because i thought it was that important now you were hurt at the end but i mean do you right. feel like you weren't brought back because of your position at the time no 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 i i i chose to retire and move okay. on yeah i i i don't think i was blackballed but i think that I, at the time i was thinking like a younger emotional kind of um ego driven guy and Hey, I get and that. Then, yeah. <laughs> you have to explain it to me, man. <laughs> and I was like, no, we're going to fight this to the end. When actuality, that wasn't how the players felt. The players wanted to get back on the field. The players wanted to get paid. It goes back to that financial thing that we're talking about. Guys' careers are very short. They're, most guys in the league are still on their first deal, which is not, I mean, it's not a tremendous amount of money, particularly if we're talking about how how ill-equipped they are for the rest of the workforce because we talk about those sacrifices that they made to dedicate themselves to football. Like this is money that needs to last guys for the rest of their lives. So when you say a guy made um, 
like a quarter million dollars his rookie year, like after taxes, we all say, wow, that's a lot of money to make in a year. But <laughs> think about when you leave and you put on your resume, I was a football player, like that doesn't get you very far unless you're trying to be a bouncer, frankly. So that money is important to to those guys. And me saying like, and I'd already signed a second contract that was pretty lucrative. So that like added to my bluster. It might've been different if I was coming up on my second deal. But for me to say to a guy who may only have a three-year career that he could make a quarter of a million every year and may not make anywhere close to that the rest of his life to say, no, forfeit one-third of your life's earnings so that I can walk out and puff out my chest and said I beat Roger Goodell. Like, I look back on that and realize how stupid that was of me to feel that way. But at the time, it was like, no. We're, I'm not taking any less than what we had percentage wise before. And I also want these, um, these quality of life gains. Where do you think this thing goes? Where, like, is it going to get better for the players? I mean, it's, it, it, as I said, like the simplest way to do this is go, Oh my God, the cap's going up. It's all working out. Everybody's really happy. I do think that you're also, you know, I don't mind when the top NBA players make a ton of money. I would be annoyed if I were one of the other 450 players. Like, I don't like how there wasn't some sort of softening because there's certain players that are going to go, wait a minute, how much is Evan Turner making? How much, even though I know he went off on everybody recently, how much does Alan Crabb make? Like, wait a minute, where's, where's that money for me now that the cap space is dried up? I do think that there's a middle class problem in the NFL, but like, is this, is this going to get better for players or are, the owner's going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing and hoping to just have small wins every time they do this. I, so, I mean, again, and I hate, this is an old article now. I hate to keep referring back to it, but. No, it's a I great article. Check it yeah, out. It's I, don't, I don't thing. see. Is it, what, last July? Yeah, I'll, I'll retweet it at some yeah, point perfect. today. But I don't, I don't see any, I, I, re, I keep bringing it up because I think an article points to, I don't see why the owners would stop doing what they're doing. Because it, again, it is not in the players' interests. Uh, it's not logical. It's not rational for the players to endure, endure a strike over one or two percent each time a CBA comes up. Now, the, the, the risk that they could take is that they could just upset the players. And as we saw during the NFL with the players kneeling is that if you challenge them, that's a whole different story. Like if you do something that is disrespectful, they feel is disrespectful and challenging them, they will put their livelihood on the line as a matter of pride and um and dignity frankly but if you continue just to come back with some story no matter how true or not of why you need 2% back and the players look at the math and like uh yeah it's fine it's not worth $67,000 or $100,000 whatever it'll be by then like i can't see why how the players will be able to create leverage and uh there's no alternative league. There's no like, I don't know how else you create the leverage, which is why I end up at dissolving the union, because that creates a tremendous amount of leverage, because currently the leagues operate as a legal monopoly cartel. And they only are able to do that uh, because the unions exist. And so if you remove that, that is terrifying. The idea that it could be exposed to treble damages in um, federal court is enough to create leverage for players. But you don't get that leverage without taking a risk. So I don't know if anyone will ever go that route. I, I brought it up on a panel I was on with um, Michelle Roberts at uh, at Sloan, and she was certainly it was something that when I worked for her, I was very um, I was all I was all for, and I was pushing for from the inside, and she did not seem very much for it. And, and none of the unions, frankly, not just a single her out, but 
none of the union leaders seem to to be interested in it because it's it's a hell of a risk because they can build another union behind your back that will um, sign a CBA and move on. If you don't have the faith and trust of the players, it's it's super dangerous. No, that's a really good point, too, that you brought up, because I know, you know, DeMorris gets challenged. I know Sean Gilbert gone after him a bunch, and I, I think. Sean was really strategic in that he announced, you know, all the things that he was going to do to take over as a former NFL player. And I, I don't know if you like him, dislike him, um, but he he was strategic in announcing. And he's done it a couple times. He did it right before Demora Smith was coming through to do a car wash at ESPN, and it was <laughs> well I mean, timed. It, it was really strategically well done because then everybody had to ask Demoris on every show, and I'm there like I don't know if it was SVP and Rosillo, Rosillo. I don't know which version uh, that day it was, and he, he's like. I was like, hey, what what do you have on this? And he just looks at me like, you. He's like, I get it. But, you know. <laughs> Gotta so, ask it. Like Sean's approach, and other people have said this, is if, is if they have the magic potion, they have the formula right. to figure out how to do this better than everybody who's done it before them. What, yeah. what do you think of, what's your response internally when you it's, read that kind of stuff? It's politics. Like, it's no different than what happens in politics, frankly. And as, um... As disillusioned as many of us are with the state of politics today, that is kind of how I feel about the state of union leadership campaigning. Like it's the same thing where every, everyone who's on the outside has all the fixes when they get on the inside and then they get on the inside and learn that those fixes don't necessarily work. So like the last CBA, DeMorris was thrust in there. So in order to create some sort of leverage, you need four or five years of leadway. DeMorris was thrust in there with a, a year, I think a little over a year until because Gene died suddenly, Gene Upshaw yeah. died suddenly. And we went on search, hired DeMorris with a little less than a year's time to build up the proper amount of leverage to fight back against the owners. So I think that's part of the reason why I get defensive, defensive when I look at that deal, because we're up against the mighty NFL. We get a new guy in off the bench who hasn't had time to create a long-term strategy to create leverage, and we walk away with a with a deal that I think is respectable and reasonable and has major advancements for the players. So I think why it's like politics is when you're on the outside, it's easy to say all the things that you're going to do, but no particular politician, while we like to do this deification and we're like, hey, this guy will solve the problem. Like in general, I was reading a – um, an article in the New York Times about all the dysfunction in um, Venezuela, and it, they put all the solutions are going to be Leopoldo Lopez. If he could only get free of his imprisonment and get into office, he will fix everything. I don't know. Just like I enjoyed that article. However, it just bothers me because everything is about this one guy is going to lead us and has all the answers. And that's never true anywhere in life. Like power comes from collective action. And that's true in unions. That's true in um, whatever. Like the only reason why a dollar is worth something, because all of us believe that uh, that piece of paper is worth something. So the only reason why um, Roger Goodell has any power is because all the owners have decided that they are going to trust him with that power. And the same thing is true for the union. The only way that the, the, the executive director or the president will have power is if all the players are willing to act collectively. So if the players are willing to to strike or if the players are willing to stand strong uh, as an association and not as a union, if the players are willing to do all those things collectively, then they can have whatever it is that they want, because eventually the the ownership will recognize that that the players aren't going to move and they will bend to the whim of the players. But until uh, and, and that's kind of why I think that it doesn't. 
like Sean Gilbert, I, I don't know him super well personally. I don't have a problem with him. Uh, he's fine with me. Like I, I don't get angry at anybody, particularly former players who want to get involved and be a part of the solution if they think that they're a part of the solution. Like if, if in his heart of hearts he thinks that what's happening at the Players Association is wrong and he can fix it, then more power to him. Like I'm not going to be the one. I, I, I like DeMorris and I was part of the team that brought him in, but I, I am not – it's a it's an organization meant to serve the players, and it's yeah. not an organization meant to serve Demar Smith. So if I came to the conclusion that someone else could do it better, and I've told D this, and I like him, but then I would advocate for that person. So I just say it's a really long-winded way of saying that I don't think that any one person has the answer, and I think that outside of office, you always think you do. Then you get in office and you realize that the answer is in the collective action of the players. The last thing I want to ask you about here, and – I was going through some of the notes from Sloan when you were on this panel. And again, I, I think people, it was important to point out that you worked with Michelle Roberts on the Players Association side for the NBA, because I think that gets lost in the fact that you're president of the NFLPA. Um, I guess Harvard Business School pays off. Is Harvard Business School tough? Is it hard? <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say it was easy, but I think it's, uh, it's, it's certainly from friends who I know have gone to like Wharton or something like that. Harvard is definitely easier. <laughs> than, oh, shout out to. All right. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like Warden gets the credit for being like where where you don't take your eyes off of Excel and your brain is constantly being bent in that direction. But yeah, Harvard was fun, but getting in was hard. And I think um, negotiating was when I kind of learned that I deserve or that I was capable because prior to that, I think we all have this. And this goes back to the deification thing where it's like, hey, that guy's made a billion dollars. He must be super smart. Mm-hmm. Or, hey, that guy's going to Harvard. He must be super smart. I got a secret for you guys. It's, they aren't that smart. And when I went to negotiations with the owners, I was like, hey, these billionaires, like um, kings of all industries, like I am just as smart as them. And I don't know that was a realization that I, I guess seems obvious, but it's like they, they work really hard. I don't they think have that's some obvious. intelligence. I, I think people yeah. would be surprised to hear this, but I get your point. Yeah, I mean, they have some intelligence. They work really hard. They've gotten lucky. Like their success, like anyone else's success is, is like a collection of like, uh, like serendipity and hard work and, and talent. And I don't know. I, I thought that everyone was like a super genius, like Bill Gates prior to that. But even Bill Gates story, you'll look at and you'll see quite a bit of serendipity. So this is a whole nother tangent about life in general, existential questions of the world with Ryan Rossillo. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, but you, you said something that I, I hadn't ever thought of before because Adam Silver has this likability. His, his approval rating is higher than any of the other commissioners. And I think he came in after a, a guy in David Stern who was very successful, but was very anti-player. I didn't love that as commissioner, I understand like when you're a commissioner, there's, there's always this, it's really this foolish idea of like, how come the commissioner's not more on our side as players? And you go, because he is, I mean, it couldn't be more direct who he is working for, appointed by the owners, paid for by the owners. Like, figure it out. This is not a new, this isn't, this isn't Switzerland here, man. Um, but David Stern was, was, he kind of felt like every time there was a collective bargaining coming up, he, he would make the players an enemy publicly that worked. But I just felt like, man, is there another way you can do this? Like when they had their last work stoppage with Stern in place, he threatened to uh, dissolve every existing contract. And there wasn't one labor lawyer that said, well, that's possible. Like if you had a hundred million owed to you, Stern was saying in the media, well, maybe we'll just dissolve everybody's contracts. We'll just start at zero again. How will the players feel about that? And you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. 
That would be <laughs> awful. And then every lawyer, I mean, every, it wasn't even debatable. Every lawyer is like, that's so not true what he just said. It's, it's impossible. So you had said, be careful to the NBA's player association. Be careful for Silver to use up all this good equity as a weapon against you in negotiation. And it, it, it made my kind of radar go up because I go, I just, I hadn't thought of anybody, and that's that's coming from you, who's been in these negotiation rooms. Like you understand this, so do you, like, do you think that's a real weapon from him? Do you think this yeah. is calculated? Do you, I, I don't, I don't know well whether it's calculated or not, but I don't think it matters. Like I, I like Adam Silver a great deal. Like we exchange emails on occasion. I, I think he is actually genuinely a good and decent person. I don't think that this is like some long play, but I also. As a union leader, don't have the luxury or a former union leader don't have the luxury of wondering if this is strategic or not. Like you when you get in negotiations, you use every bit of leverage that you can possibly muster. And this is how I view it, at least, is it is building up leverage because in in the eyes of the public, like the public's opinions matter because the players get their opinions. You're right. Often. Yeah, they get their opinions from what people are saying. It's like the franchise them. tag. Just to jump yep. in there, like the franchise tag as a as a fan, you go, oh, cool. My favorite right. player can't go anywhere. And then you suppress the salaries. And I don't want to hear about the cap going up the franchise tag. And we can see it with Kirk Cousins, how well that has worked as a mechanism to constantly suppress average annual salaries for top quarterbacks because, oh, just franchise tag. Them. I mean, it's the same people that thought the NFL free agency was going to ruin. And if you go back and read Lords of the Realm and all the people that thought baseball would be destroyed because of free agency. I see you, Ryan. Oh, look, man. I mean, Lords of the Realm is the greatest sports book ever written. You have to read it because then you understand everything. And when when I read that stuff and I go... This is the same crap like everyone believes. Like, this is generational stuff. I remember growing up in New England and being a big Red Sox fan and people being mad that Fred Lynn left his... I thought Fred Lynn was the devil because he signed <laughs> with the Angels. Yep. And, and then, you know, you start to become more seasoned. You become an adult and you go, there were generations of people that thought free agency was something that was so awful. And yep. I think that there's still people that look at a salary cap or look at the draft and say, no, none of these things can be questioned because it'd right. be terrible for these players to have rights. So right. there's, there's yeah. my little, I'm not <laughs> no, running I, for office here. I'm just, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, you got my vote so far, but I think that, um, like, I, like I mentioned, the players get a lot of their, um, strength and opinions from what they hear from fans and from the media. And so, this is why I think that Adam Silver has, has created some leverage with his goodwill because the perception of Adam is that he is a good person, yes. a reasonable, thoughtful, kind person who hates racism and loves equity. And that is a perception that the NBA has done a good job, intentionally or not, juxtaposing with Roger Goodell in the NFL. And so now imagine that we are in a labor situation uh, a few years from now, a labor strife situation between the NBA players and the NBA. And imagine uh, Adam Silver sauntering to the microphone after decades or at least one decade of being this perfect um, progressive minded commissioner and saying, no, I, I, this is not something made up like we are actually in some real financial dire straits and we need and we need the players to concede in order to continue this league like that has huge value because we all and I, I am not saying this like I'm immune to it somehow and also it may be factually accurate but imagine Roger Goodell coming and saying that 
And it may be factually accurate, accurate. But if Roger Goodell says that the response from the media and the message that goes to the players is this is nonsense. You should be strong enough to stand. And I think, again, to bring up the Kaepernick and the kneeling thing, like I think that the reason why part of the reason why the kneeling spread while there was a huge bit of the of our society who was against it. A lot of the main voices, a lot of the most respected voices in sports and a lot of respected voices outside of sports were commending the guys for what they were doing. And I think that is something that feels good. You're like, oh, I'm doing the right thing. And so I think that matters. If you put it in the CBA context, if you juxtapose those guys against each other, they're saying the exact same message the same way. Who are you more likely to believe and how are the stories going to be written? How are the players going to appreciate or going to receive that 10 years from now when Adam Silver is saying this is a genuine problem? Like, I, I think that is valuable. And I don't I'm not even I'm not going to venture into whether this is a strategic play or not or whether it's genuine or not. All my experiences with Adam have been great. Like he's a genuine guy. I shoot him an email. There's nothing for him to gain from helping me out, but he'll help me out. So I think he's a good, decent dude. But that don't matter when it comes to CBA negotiation time. He's going to want to please the owners. And if the owners want 2 or 3%, I will not put it above him to use whatever goodwill that he's he's built up to burn that capital in order to um to uh to get what the owners want. I could uh do this all day, but I got to give out bracket stuff and and all the other stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, thanks a lot for this. This I hope people enjoyed it. I love this stuff. I, I'm actually passionate about it. And I think it's really important for anybody that spends a lot of time you know, in front of a television watching these games. And, and I to me, this is this is at the core of all this stuff. Like all the stuff that happens out on that field, all the decisions. Can my team do this? Can it not do this? Like understanding this, you go, Oh, okay. Now I now I get it better. So I'm look, you and you should also feel like you don't have to be humble with me, man, when you do awesome things. And to be the president of the NFLPA and to do the stuff you've done after your career because you were so much more conscious of like, what's my transition going to be? And then to try to set up that transition and make it easier for people like that is a big part of the agreement. And uh, you should feel proud about that when you have private moments, man, remind <laughs> yourself of what you've accomplished. Right. I know. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a cornerback at heart, so I don't have a problem oh, yeah, being, I being prideful <laughs> and I will I will shake it around in everybody's face whenever given the opportunity. But uh, when I when I'm uh, when I don't deserve credit also, I, I, I'll say that too. 